0: Today I want to. Uh, we're in chapter four of Ecclesiastes. If you're following, we'll be on page eight. But I want to. Um, I want to begin with a couple of questions. Hello, Matt. You're a little later than usual. <laughs> Matt is often in my. Uh, Matt's often in my six. Uh, 6.30 a.m. class. Uh, we're taking a little bit of a break here. Would you pass up, Tim? But, uh, he's, a, he's a good friend. And it's good to see him. I'm glad you're able to be here. But uh, I want to start by asking a couple questions, and I've written them on the board, actually. But um, let's review a couple of things uh, because it's been two weeks that are important about the book of Ecclesiastes. <clears throat> first two chapters As we've talked, Solomon is, in effect, asking a whole series of questions or posing a whole series of situations about his life, and he's positing the idea, if there's no God, then why do this? Why do this? Why do this? Because I've tried everything. And everything is vanity. All is vanity. Chapter 3, he introduces God. And he shows, as you know, in the first part of chapter 3, that God is sovereign that his providence is real. Providence means his involvement, his superintendence of things in life is real. But, as he is now showing us, this doesn't solve everything. There are still so many aspects of life that are very difficult for us, because we are not God and we are not sovereign, we cannot always know why things are happening the way they're happening. And so I keep coming back to this idea things don't always make sense. Sometimes it seems futile. So here in chapter four, beginning where I wanna start right away with verse four, is he comes back to this idea of work. He comes back to this idea of, of what we do typically day in and day out with our lives and so I'm, I'm going to start today again with questions and I've po- written them on the board and I'm posing these questions I do not necessarily want you to answer but I want you to think about them because these are the questions he's addressing why work why work hard why doesn't it really make sense to just, this is a phrase he uses: to eat, drink, and be married. Why work, and why work hard? And he asks, I'm rephrasing it, but what's what's the passion of your life? What, what are your, if you had to sit down and write a paragraph or two, what's the passion of your life? I'm assuming that most of you, a dimension of or a part of your life's passion. Does relate to what you do, you know how you earn your your uh, your, your life's uh, your, your life's work, the, the wages that you earn. Uh, that has something to do with your passion. I mean, it's something that causes you to get up every morning. And in a sense, and a much these are kind of like a series of concentric circles. And I'm getting the farthest one out is why do you do what you do? Because you see. One of the things that Solomon, and this is why it's such, a, it's such a great book, we know God, we believe God, we trust God, we believe God's sovereignty and providence, but it doesn't answer still a lot of the questions we have, because we're not God. And we have to keep falling back. Even though I can't quite figure all this out, I still trust you, God. Even though I'm not getting every single one of my questions answered to its fullest, I still trust you, God. And what Solomon keeps doing, this is why I love this particular section of the book, he gets down to the nitty-gritty of what we do typically, day in and day out with our lives. We work. And I know some of you well, some of you I don't know real well, but I know a lot of you really work hard. And you're given a big chunk of your week to your work. Some of you 90 hours, some of you 40 hours, some of you 60 hours, and it depends on what you do. And so Solomon is, again, coming back to this and probing this. Are you with me? So he starts in verse 4, and I, again, if you're going to follow in your notes, it's at the bottom of page 8. And I have seen that every labor and every skill which is done is a result of rivalry between a man and his neighbor. This, too, is vanity and striving after win. Solomon paints the picture, so to speak, of workers, uh, skilled workers. Workers who have some kind of skill that they've marketed. And he looks at this and he observes they're in rivalry. What's another word for rivalry? And competition. They're competing with one another. And he looks at that and he says, hmm, This seems to me to be vanity. This seems to be to be striving after wind. Because as he said earlier in the book, here he's sort of alluding to it here, that competition, that rivalry between people leads to almost a workaholic type of approach to what we do. I mean, you just pour everything because I'm better than Andrew. I'm a better skilled laborer than he is. And I'm going to show it to him and I'm going to show it to my boss. And I'm going to show it to everybody. So I want to really, 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 really work hard. He puts in 40 hours, I'm going to put in 50. He puts in 50, I'm going to put in 60. And I'm going to show everybody that I'm better than he is. Now, is that a foreign concept to, to you? That's not a foreign concept. And you can see how, to, even in America in 2014, that kind of an approach can lead to a workaholic approach to what we do. Now, it is—I just read a study when I was traveling, <clears throat> but uh, this is becoming more and more characteristic of women in the workplace. It used to be much more much more characteristic of men that a man defines his identity by what he does. That's his identity. Not that he's a father, not that he's a husband. His identity is his work. Now, increasingly, in this study I was reading is showing women in the workplace, that's beginning, to, that's beginning to be their identity. Typically, until very recently in history, a woman identified herself. Her identity was a mother. I'm a mother to X number of children. That is not the case anymore. So Solomon is what Solomon is saying here is as relevant as if it was written 5 minutes ago. Then he goes to the other extreme, the next verse. The fool folds his hands and consumes his own flesh, which that's an idiom it sounds bizarre. But what's he talking about? You have the one end of the spectrum, constant rivalry and competition which leads to almost a workaholic ethic, and what's the other end of the spectrum? doing nothing? The fool who doesn't do anything. Now, we could be political here and we could start talking about welfare and the entitlement mentality. We could do that. I don't want to do that. I want to stay away from the politics of this. But a person who says, I don't have to work hard. And I don't define my identity by my work. I define my identity by my toys by what I do. Well, Andrew just came from a lake in Minnesota by being on the lake all the time. And I just fold my hands away and, you know, Okay, where's he getting the money? That's not the point. And the point, the, the end, I don't mean Andrew there. I was, <laughs> he was, just came to my mind because, but it consumes, This is he's going to die that way. He doesn't care. So you have these two ends of the spec- spectrum when it comes to work. A workaholic, and a person who could care less. And to me, if you're, if you're seeing things that way, that's extremely relevant to the 21st century, because that's basically what, you know, we've talked about this before, one of the most significant growths of our population, proportionately speaking, are men, young adults, who are still living with their parents. They're 30 years old and they're still living with their parents. They haven't figured out what they're going to do with their life. They don't, they don't know what their identity is. So they're, they're, they're into NASCAR racing, drinking beer, and video games. That same article was talking about that. Very broad stroke stereotype. But I suspect in a group this size, you know a family or two that has a son still living at home. He hasn't figured out who he is yet. He doesn't know what he wants to do with his life. Because we sent the message to that guy, you've got to go to college, you have to excel, you have to do this, you have to do this, you have to do this, then you're a success. He says, I, don't go, I want to go to college, I don't do well in school, I'm not going to do anything. That's the kind of, that's the kind of thing that Solomon is trying to construct for us. So, what's, what's the next step for this? Verse six. One hand full of rest is better than two fists full of labor and striving after wind. Now, as Solomon writes, this is a proverb. So let's unpack the proverb. One hand full of rest is better than two fists full of labor. What does he mean? What's the proverb mean? Balance. Balance, balance. Dave, in a sense, Dave's yeah. word could be summarized, Dave's sentences could be summarized in one right If you don't work hard, what he's saying, I believe, is that don't work hard because you're envious of everybody else. Work hard because that's what you want to do. You trust in him, but I mean, there's a fine line between working hard because. It fits with your passion. Yeah. Okay, let's. Good. Good comments. Can you think of um, another word, one hand full of rest? Can you think of one word that's balance? It's one word. Can you think of another word? Peace. Peace. Can you think of another word? It starts with a C. Contentment. Contentment. That's the word I came up with. Is contentment mean you're lazy and don't do anything? No, that's not what that means. Contentment is, and that's a hard, that is really a difficult word to get our arms around. Solomon seems to be saying contentment. Contentment is much better than two hands where you're a workaholic. And that's everything. So let's, let's think about, how, would, how do we answer this in terms of how would we summarize this in terms of our faith commitment to God, our daily walk with God? What's this gonna look like? Not workaholism and not a lazy bum, but what does it look like? So let me, and this is, in one sense I'm getting beyond what Solomon is teaching, and in another sense it's, it's the heart of what Solomon's teaching. From the perspective of the Bible, How do you define your identity? Joel? Child of Christ. The child of Christ. Your identity is defined by your relationship with Jesus Christ, not by your work. Now that does not mean that your work isn't important, what you've trained for, what you've been educated, what you work, that's not what it's saying. But your identity is in Christ. 217 times in the New Testament, the phrase being in Christ is used. That's who we are. 2 Corinthians 3 talks about we are a new creation. Behold, all things things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. We are a new creature in Christ. Does that mean we don't work hard? That's not what it means. Does that mean that what I do for my life, location, is not important? No, that's not what it means. That is very, very important. Because God's gifted you, God's made you that way. That's who you are. But your identity is in Christ. My father will be 90 years old in two weeks. My dad's entire identity was he was in heavy construction all his life. Steel, concrete, big jobs. And he, you drive around the city of Lancaster, you see a lot of buildings my dad built. As we were driving, uh, we took him to dinner one night because my dad, he's almost an invalid. But as we were driving, there were two buildings. I built that, Jim, remember? And every time we passed that, he tells me. <laughs> but you know the problem for my dad right now? Is that was my dad's entire life. He had no hobbies. He had no outside interests. His work consumed him. And when he retired, and even after he retired, he continued doing some of it, part-time and all of that. But he can't now now what's his identity? He's really struggling with that. Because my, my dad's whole life was framed around what he did. And, and this is something Stalin will talk about later on. As you get older, that's no longer important. Because that's not your identity. Your identity is in your relationship with Jesus Christ, and that will last for eternity. What we do for a living, or vocation is gonna pass away. And so this is what Solomon's, I hope you're starting to see this. This is what Solomon's getting at. If all you do is focus on your vocation and you work hard, which leads to workaholic because you're being competitive with people and men are much more competitive, although the article said women are becoming now much more competitive than they used to be. And the result of all this is emptiness, vacuum. That's my dad. I, 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 was, I was just saddened again. I, I spend, I call my dad, I talk to him usually every week. But when I'm with him, I see it even more. My dad has no reason to get up in the morning anymore. And that's now part of it is he's sick, he's not, but it's, just, it's been that way for probably about 16 or 17 years. Solomon is saying our identity, and the New Testament stresses us especially, our identity is in Christ. And Philippians chapter 4 is the best chapter in the Bible on contentment. Paul says, I have been, I have lived with wealth. I've lived where I had no need. And I've lived in poverty, distress. Um, I've, I've lived with, with nothing. But I've learned that in Christ I can do all things. Because he strengthened me. I've learned to be contented, whatever state I'm in. I think a lot of us were brought up that contentment contentment is also a risk. We feel that contentment is a risk that if we don't strive, if we get too content, it's risky. Mm. It's like um, we don't strive for, I might lose even what I have see what I'm saying? Absolutely. Absolutely. When we have that perspective, where is our trust? I mean, I, I'm not being, I, I'm not in any way uh, diminishing what you say or, or responding in a glib way, but that, that is real. Our trust is in the wrong things. Your, I mean, you're absolutely right. That's when my father was. My dad was like that. And I, it was such a strength in my father's life and his work ethic, he, he that rubbed off on me. He, he influenced that work ethic I have a, from my father because I saw it in him. But I also have seen in my dad what, what we've been talking about. That was everything in his life was that. You take that away, dad doesn't have anything. Now, he knows the Lord. I don't mean he's, he's, he knows the Lord and walks with the Lord. But it's at this point in his life, it's just really sad to see that. With dad, and he just—he's really, really, really struggling with that. He's struggling with some depression because of that, uh, which can sometimes go with old age as well. Now, um, any any other comments before? Jim, just—I'm just curious what your dad. You said he's almost many You said this started about 15, 16 years ago. Yeah. Well, how long has he been? How long had he been retired? Well, Dad was retired. Uh, well, he he took his retirement 66. Uh, you know, when he started. But he was he was very active. He was involved in a number of things related to construction okay. industry. Um, we would today probably call it more, and it wasn't exactly like a consultant, but it was more of that. And he was, our church, well, not our church, which we're not involved in, my parents' church, when I was a little boy, I went to that. But my parents' church was doing a huge expansion progress. And they had dad come in as a consultant, helped a lot. And that was over, that was over about an eight year period, because they, they had phased projects they were going to do. And dad was a major consultant on that. that boy, that was important to him. And they gave him, they honored him for that and those kinds of things. But but you can ta- and that's great, but you take that away. I mean, dad had no, dad started playing golf after he's retired, which, you know, isn't the best time to start playing golf. I mean, it's it, he, he enjoyed it, but it was, uh, it just, it was really difficult for him because all of his friends that played golf, you know, some of them were playing scratch golf and dad's, you know, you know, triple quadruple bogeys on holes and playing with these guys that are you know sometimes getting a hole in one it's you know okay paul come on um and that was hard for him okay yeah so that uh, the answer question actually I, noticed isn't writing as dark, as it usually does. This must be a 10 Let me get another one here. If we say, why work? We do that to serve God. What's my passion? To glorify God through my work. Why do I do what I do? I'm answering it the way the Bible would have us answer it. Because our identity, and this affects absolutely everything we do, our identity, identity is related to our relationship with Jesus Christ. So, okay, suppose we answer all these questions the way the scriptures encourage us to answer them a God-centered or, terms of the New Testament, Christ-centered life. Yet, as we pursue our work, we're still going to struggle with these three things. Envy, greed, and I don't know how else to put it. We, if we have time, and we, if we get that far, I'm not sure we'll get that far. But as we go through each one of these, I'm, I'm calling this a desire for advancement advancement in our career. That's not bad by any stretch. And this, depending on how you look at it, can be a positive, as can this, depending what it ends up. But these are all pretty negative words. So, he's bringing up additional things for us to think about. So, in verse 7 through uh, 12, again, I'm following uh, somewhat in the, the notes here, he brings up some things that are a part of this aspect of life. Then I looked again at vanity under the sun. It was a certain man without a dependent, having neither a son nor a brother, yet there was no end to all his labor. Indeed, his eyes were not satisfied with riches, and he never asked, And for whom am I laboring and depriving myself of pleasure? This too is vanity, and it's a grievous task. Now let's stop there for a minute. I'm on the section at the top, page nine, dealing with greed. We've dealt with envy and competition and all of that. Um, verse eight. Let me read that again. I want to ask you, what Christmas figure does this remind you of? There's a certain man without a dependent, having neither son nor a brother, yet there was no end to all his labor. Indeed, his eyes were not satisfied with riches. And he never asked, and for whom am I laboring, depriving myself of pleasure? It's Scrooge, it's Scrooge isn't it? It's Ebenezer Scrooge. And that is exactly what Charles Dickens was doing. Charles Dickens starting in 1843, every year wrote a Christmas essay. It was published in London. There are a whole series of them. Get them in a book. This was his most famous one called A Christmas Carol. But Ebenezer Scrooge personifies the greedy, miserly man who is obsessed with his work, obsessed with wealth, but he doesn't do anything with it. So Solomon observed the Ebenezer Scrooge of 3,000 years ago in Jerusalem. And he says, this too is vanity. It's a grievous task. How would you define greed? I'm asking too hard. These are too hard. These are too difficult. This is causing you to think too much. Too. Fred or Joel, I don't know, which? Wanting what you don't have. Say it again. Wanting what you don't have. Wanting don't, what you don't have. How, uh, when does that stop? Never. Never stops. You always want more. They asked a very wealthy man one time, um, "How many more?" Dollars do you need? Do you remember his answer? Just one more. Samuel Gompers, the founder of the American Federation of Labor, was asked, What do you want for your workers? The one word answer. More. We want a bigger share of the capitalist pie. When will you be satisfied? We will never be satisfied, he said. We will always want more. Ebenezer Scrooge, if you've ever read it, or there's about 75 different movies of Ebenezer Scrooge, so it's hard to believe you never have seen at least one. What well, was Scrooge's life like? He worked from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. 7 p.m. is when his counting house closed in London. What did he do? He owned lots of property, lots of rents, he loaned out money at exorbitant price, uh, interest rate, on and on. What was he doing to the money? He'd sit there and count it, store it away. When my kids were, I don't even remember what it is, but when my kids were little, they watched one. It was a guy, one of them was cartoon, and he was singing. And he was just singing about the joy of counting all his money. (laughs) Oh, goodness. Uh, He wraps verse 8 around, with this is the singular-minded, focused, individual person who doesn't have anybody else in his life. And then he goes on in verse 9, 10, 11, and 12, which I I think are some of the most important verses in the Bible when it comes to interpersonal relationship. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. Again, these are proverbs. Unpack that proverb for me. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. Unpack that. What's another way of saying that? Marriage. Marriage. Well, (laughs) you could. I mean, you could insert marriage into this as an example. Yes. The context, though, is work. The context is work. Uh, it would fit marriage, no doubt about it. But, Joe? It's a matter of being more productive or the result of your being productive? Yeah, generally speaking, two working together, it is more productive. You can accomplish more. And if you can accomplish more in the way he puts it, a good return. What's another way of saying that? Synergy. Uh, synergy, which in terms of business will produce what? Yeah, a higher profit. Your, your, margin, your profit margin will probably be better because you have two people doing the same thing and they're balancing and working, synergy, synergy, balancing work so that the end result is it's more profitable. You're more productive. Solomon, it's like Solomon saying, duh, two are better than one. It is actually more profitable. It's more productive. Second, Verse 10. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion, but woe to the one who falls when there's not one to lift him up. Unpack that proverb. Well, I, I think, well, to me, what it means is to spend time going through life with other believers. Could Dave, I mean, your, your voice was trailing off. Right, and get, Yeah, what, what it means to me is to spend time going through life with other believers, because as you can. Have ebbs and, flow, ebbs and flow in your faith, and you know, one can bring the other one up. And- that would fit, absolutely. Absolutely. But even more broadly, just in life, even believers in life, but in the work, because remember, the concept of this is work, working relationships. If you're alone and a calamity comes, which it always comes in business, <coughs> who's going to be there to help you? Nobody. And so he's saying, in a business relationship, because remember, this is the context, and and what Dave said is absolutely correct, what Matt said is absolutely correct, but remember, this is a business situation. It's, It's better to have more than one involved, because when calamity comes, there are others to help and assist, pull you up. Third, furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm. How can one be warm alone? Again, and remember, this is a proverb. Unpack the proverb in the context of business. It gives you more confidence if you're both on the same page and headed in the same direction. Okay. What's another C, another C word besides confidence? Okay. Companionship. Companionship. Comfort. All of those words. When you're in it together, when you have a whole team of people committed to something, and calamity comes or disaster comes or hardship comes, it's much better to be together. You're comforting each other. You're building up one another's confidence. There's a certain assurance there that comes from that. Now listen to me. It's not that you aren't listening to me. But that's a pedagogical technique. So my pastor always says, Everybody look up here. I want you to look at me. And you know, as if almost 98% of the people are looking at him. But he just, because he wants to make a point. God created us as interpersonal beings. That's how God created us. When God created Adam... And he gives Adam authority over his creation. What's God's conclusion? It is not good for man to be alone. Everything, you look at that, I studied this one time, you look at everything in the scriptures, everything that God created, in a sense, as institutions are interpersonal. Family, the state, the church, They're all all people working together for common purpose. You can't do it alone. It is counterintuitive to see that God desires for us to be alone, that intuitively you just say that's the way we're to be with other people. I'm stronger. Matt mentioned marriage, but I'm stronger. I am far, far stronger with my wife than if I were alone. She is my complement in every way. My weaknesses, and there are so many of those, are to some extent canceled out by the strength that she brings to our marriage. She has, she has the temerity to tell me when I am doing something wrong. Every morning I used to, when I was in leadership, I, always, I don't wear a coat and tie. Isn't that, it's what a, I was so liberating for two years. I have lots of dress shirts hanging in the closet that haven't, I have five or six, I haven't worn them in two years. That's a great thing. But when I used to dress, everyone i walk out and she would just look at me and say. She <laughs> didn't have to verbalize, You didn't have to tell me what did that mean. Jim, the tie doesn't match the shirt. <laughs> Wrong jacket, Jim, that doesn't work. I say, honey, come on back. Help me to pick up. <laughs> this happened about two days out of every single week. You know, Jim, the other thing, too, is with, with men, I think more than anything, you really don't ever get to really know another man until you work side by side. Mm-hmm. And that's really good. where men connect. Even when you're trying to connect with boys, the best way to connect with young men is mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. Find, find something to do together. Mm-hmm. To sit down talk face to face and start mm-hmm. working together. Mm-hmm. It's amazing how we work yep. on Yep, yep. Yeah. Why do we call – in athletics, why do we call the head of the team a coach? Do you know what I mean by the head of a team? I'm not talking about the captain. I'm talking about, you know, the, the USA uh, soccer team. And I am not – I have found, as I've been watching some of the – how much I do not understand about soccer. I mean, I, I thought it was a relatively simple – it is – that's hard to understand the rules of that crazy game. But they hired a German to be the coach, and he had that that capacity to see the strengths of individual players and how to take those strengths and put them together into a cohesive whole where it's going to be a world competitive team. Did he succeed? Yeah, it's the best USA's ever. I think I don't know right. It's the best USA's ever done in a World Cup. They finished in that same. Yeah, they finished in that same place. But, but Ghana didn't defeat them. Much yeah, Ghana didn't defeat them. <laughs> Ghana didn't knock them out. Right. I, I, not that Ghana doesn't have a good soccer right. team. But, uh, where was I going with all this? That's why in, um, in some areas, they're, you know, they're starting to talk of a CEO being a coach. Because the CEO sees the strengths and weaknesses of people, how the strengths of this person can help... Can't cancel out or neutralize the weakness, but when they're together, that synergy is so powerful. Solomon is getting at that, and he's saying, we really need each other. And the isolated person, John Maxwell, who's a leadership guru guy, you say, uh, that old saying, lonely at the top, that's wrong. If you're at the top and you're lonely, you're a terrible leader. You shouldn't be lonely at the top. You should have lots and lots of people around you. Now, in a sense, the buck does stop with the CEO, but a CEO who doesn't gather people around him that help neutralize his weaknesses but enhance his strengths is not a very good leader. That's just part of what Solomon is getting at. And he concludes in verse 12, for if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him, a quarter of three is not quickly torn apart. When danger, calamity, catastrophe, attacks come, three or more committed people that have agreement on the mission, agreement on the vision, are so... I'm I'm using 21st century language. It's going to be really, really hard to tear that down. Now, let's go back to all of this and let's go back to being of chapter three. God is sovereign, God's providence is real. Solomon is saying, God is the creator, God created this, us this way. Let's take the way He created us as an example of His grace and leverage that to bring glory to Him. Don't be isolated. If you're alone at the top, you're not a good leader. That's a John Maxwell-ism. So maybe it isn't a good way to put it. But there's great strength. There's great strength in numbers of people that are committed to the same thing. That's the way God made us. You know of any any basketball team, uh, any hockey team, any soccer team, it isn't about the individual. It's about the team. And anybody that sees about the individual, because, you know, I mean, some of those, there have been a few guys like that. Maybe boxing is the only sport where the individual is the glory. But I think every, almost every other sport, it is, it's team. You've got to put everything together. You've got to see the weaknesses and strengths and how everything fits together. And I think that's true in, in almost any, same way with the church. Same way with the church leaders pastor who sees himself as almost an autocrat is probably not going to last very long. That's that's for sure. All right. any thoughts or comments before we leave this section? I wish I came here yesterday. What's that? I wish this would have been yesterday for me. Well, I don't know what that means, Matt, but whatever happened, learn from that and take this and apply it to the next step. I know. You know, one observation that I have is that um, God has equipped all of us. Like there's a commonality here in this group of men, and there's a commonality in mass humanity around the world. that God has created mankind, all mankind, men, women, with the, sort of that commonality to help and assist and identify with other individuals when they're going through a struggle. I think that's true. And it's just, it just shows the grace of God to us. Mm. that we don't even sometimes realize that he loves us enough to have created that from the beginning of time. Mm. And I think uh, one of the things uh, that I take away from a passage like this is as a part of the grace of God, is a lesson that is often very difficult for a man to learn, but I think for women to some extent as well, but especially for men, I really need other people. I really need other people. And some men, I don't need anybody. That that is not that is not a that is not a healthy statement for a man to make. As a matter of fact, I think that's a very unhealthy statement for a man to I don't mean physical health, although maybe it even can mean that, but that's, that's not a positive thing for somebody to say, because I think one of the recognitions of, of God's grace is that he helps us as we walk with him to understand how much we really do need other people. i got a good example of that. I work at the hospital. Sometimes guys come in with their cane, they can barely walk. Mm. I go over. I'm, <laughs> I'm not going to pick you up if you follow, but please sit down. Yeah. But, yeah. I mean, that's the same yeah. example. Yeah. They, they so yeah. He needs somebody to tell him that, even though he doesn't want to hear it. He doesn't want to hear but, it, yeah. yeah. Yesterday we were coming back. from. I'm sure you've seen this a thousand times. We were coming back, and, and uh, we were in Harrisburg for the Detroit, Detroit home. We were in Detroit waiting for the flight. There was a little girl. She was maybe a year and a half, I don't know. Maybe a little older than that, but she was really young. And she was enjoying the freedom of being able to walk. And she was running from her mother. And then, and you know, just that, that, that sense of independence you see, you know, at one and a half, mommy, I don't need you. And she would throw her arm, you know, when her mom tried to grab her, she threw her, her hand away from her, she just kept running. And then a, a man who, burly big man started coming and she looked at him, what did she do? <laughs> I ran right, right back to her mom. Grabbed a hold of her of her leg. And I thought I said to Peggy, I said, oh my goodness, honey. First of all, I said, doesn't that remind you of Joanna? You know, our, our, our little girl when she was one. But at the same time, I thought, you know, in so many ways that's the way we are when it comes to God. Don't hold my hand. I'm on my own. I can do this my own until a danger comes, and we run back to God. God is saying to us two things. One, don't ever let your hand get out of my hand. I'm always there holding your hand. And second, I've given you by my grace lots and lots of people to walk with you in life. You know, your wife, your friends, colleagues, your team at work, all those kinds of things. Solomon is saying the individual who is so singly focused on himself and his work for greedy reasons, it's calamity, it's a disaster. That's why I love the Christmas Carol of Dickens, because Dickens nailed it. As you know, the story of Christmas Carol is redemption of Ebenezer Scrooge. That's what it's about. I'm seeing with my kids today the social media aspect Mm. of things doesn't allow them, or they don't allow themselves, to really interact with other people. You know, how they see people's affection or how many likes someone put on Facebook. Mm. Now, when you throw work into it, I mean, once they get a job, they're forced to have relationships with people around them. And I think that comes, but I think that's one of the ways we glorify God is is by through work it's, it's almost a gift <clears throat> I think it is, for it, them yeah. to to have a a job. But it you is uh, absolutely absolutely um, many me, times it almost like it retards them in their growth. I mean, how many young people do you have a difficult time having a discussion with? Just having a conversation with them having a conversation with an adult. You know, it's like, Are you, you talking know. about the tech stuff? They just don't talk. Mm-hmm. They can all be in the, the same right. room, all on their phones. Yeah. And yeah. No one's talking to each other. Yeah. Yeah. You know? mm-hmm. I'm not the only one saying this, but one of the results of, of that uh, dimension of our technology is it, it does lead to very superficial, shallow relationships. And that's not positive. I mean, that really—it doesn't mean that you know that this is evil and we should destroy all these. That's not what it means. But it does mean. I've, I've often said this to to. Uh, to I say it to kids at school. The, one of the key elements in managing this in your life is the ninth fruit of the spirit, self-control. You have to learn how to make this a tool for your success, not this. This now manages you. That's out of control. But uh, it's, it's one of the, this is really, I think as parents, um, and I, I've thought an awful lot about this. As parents, I think probably one of the best things we can do for our children is to teach them how to manage this. How to take this technology and manage it for themselves not where it begins to manage and control them. Because, I mean, you are absolutely right. I mean, I've been with young people almost my entire life. and the last eight to 10 years, I'm seeing a profound change in young adults coming to college. It is a profound change. And uh, a significant, no, I'm not sure I would say it's a majority. I don't think that's probably accurate. But it certainly, is a larger minority, are finding it very, very, very difficult to, to have good, strong, deep relationships with other people. They don't know how to do it. It's incredibly superficial. It's incredibly shallow. And um, that's, not, that's not healthy. More and more, more and more young adults really need a lot of help to become good social beings good interpersonal relationship, they don't have to do it. Which is that's astonishing, isn't it? But it's part of that. There are a lot of factors, in it, but it, it, I think it's really true. And I think parents, parents, it, it probably isn't wise to say, no, you're not going to do this until you're on your own. Uh, but what I want to do is we're going to manage this together. We're going to help set boundaries. And it's probably good that they see you managing it, too, really well. Let's conclude with uh, the remaining verses of chapter 4, and then next week we'll get into chapter 5. This is a little more difficult. I call this the desire for advancement in your notes, obsession with advancement and prestige. A person who's motivated solely by advancement and prestige. Now listen to his language. A poor yet wise lad is better than an old and foolish king who no longer knows how to receive instruction. Okay, now it's a proverb, but you see what he's doing. A poor yet wise lad, a rich, accomplished, yet old and foolish king. And the kicker is, why is he foolish, He no longer knows how to receive instruction. Let's put it another way. What makes him a fool is he's no longer teachable. Excuse me. I'm not going to answer that. I'm just going to turn it off. I'm not going to be managed by this. God set that up. It's an object lesson for you to see. No, that's not true. Now, follow what he does. It's really intriguing. For he has come out of prison to become king, even though he was born poor in his kingdom. I have seen all the living under the sun throng to the side of the second lad who replaces him. There's no end to all the people, to all who were before him. And even the ones who will come later will not be happy with him. For this too is vanity and striving after win. What What is going on here? You have two men. And one comes out of prison and is elevated to leadership. And he becomes a leader. And over time, what happens? The people abandon him. The people forget him. The people no longer follow him they're no longer happy with him. What does that sound like? Sounds like American political system. Now, let's try to put all this, it's, it's an odd way to put it, but it's, yet I think its point is, is well taken. <clears throat> what were these men seeking? Advancement, prestige, People oohing and awing in the present. They get advancement. They get prestige. The people ooh and awe in the present. Then what happens? Somebody else comes, Somebody else comes along. The same, same thing happens to that person. And what happens to that person? Same thing. And what happens to that? See, it's that cycle. If you seek advancement and prestige, it's why you do what you do, your passion in life, what's going to happen that's not going to last because quickly the people who grabbed a hold of you and followed you and think you were the greatest thing since a Reese's peanut butter cup that you place on your tongue and just let it melt which for me is what we we eat in heaven that is the greatest <laughs> greatest piece of, those little tiny Reese's oh. <sighs> It'll happen. It won't be so very, very, very long <laughs> till they'll abandon you. Won't movie be very stars long. And sports people. Yeah, exactly. yeah. And they achieve all of that, and by 30 years old, everybody's forgotten. And if if they don't, that's you know, it's been a long time since I read this, but the suicide rate among professional athletes is higher than it is among the normal population, and it, part of that is for this reason. You see, if that's the passion you have in life, boy, it won't take very long, It that's just not going to work. I mean, isn't that... Now, I, I don't, I'm don't. i not think, saying this in any way about the politics of the situation, but isn't it isn't it really interesting how everybody's talking about President Obama? It's like he's going out of office next week. He still has two years plus in his presidency. But everybody's talking about he's a lame duck, he doesn't have much authority, he's not going to get much accomplished, and if he loses his... His party loses the, I mean, it's just sort all of wrong because... Now, what's the big issue? 2016, will Hillary run? That's the issue. You know, it's unbelievable. We have two and a half years till that occurs. This is exactly what Solomon is saying here. The same with business. The same in almost every area of life. If your chief end, chief goal is advancement of prestige, that's like smoke, quick blows away. Then they're on to the next guy. This is a. This is. I always find this amazing. This is three thousand years old. And it's like it was written yesterday. About a professional athlete, or a politician, or a Jack Welch. Well, I guess they still look to him and ask him questions. But, all right. I. But I probably should quit. Not probably. I definitely must quit. Now, tomorrow, what I want to I get, and I mean, uh, next Wednesday, I want to get into Chapter 5, uh, where I, this, I really love this chapter. Of course, I love Chapter 4. So, if you have a chance to read Chapter 5, I don't want to make this an assignment that I will grade and hold you accountable for. But if you have time, read Chapter 5. We'll dig into that next week. It's a great chapter, isn't it, chapter four? just helps us to have a God-honoring perspective about what we do. Father, we thank you for your word, a word that is alive and pierces our hearts with truth. Thank you for the challenge of thinking through chapter four and how it applies to each one of our lives. These are busy men around this table, involved in a lot of different areas in their lives. Some of them are nearing retirement, some are retired, some are, in a sense, just in the beginning or in the middle of a, of a, of a pursuit of a career. Help them to keep all of these things in balance. Help them to see in their lives that, to, that their identity is not framed by what they do for a vocation Their identity is in Christ. And now they work hard, they pursue their goals with their hands strongly in yours. seeking to bring glory to you. Help them to be sensitive to what they're modeling before their children. Help them to be aware that people are watching them and that they are seeking to be good representatives of you in all they do. That they're achieving contentment and balance. That they're, uh, they're seeing the need to surround themselves with competent people whose strengths and weaknesses balance one another so that they can build good teams to accomplish a mutually understood and embraced goal. Those are all biblical concepts, and we saw some of those even today. God, our our passion and the drive of our life is Christ-centered and Christ-focused. That can have a lot of different meanings and applications in our lives, but that is the teaching of Scripture. And it does bring that fulfillment. It brings that purpose. It brings that meaning to all we do. It helps us get through the difficult times, the calamitous times that are part of living in a fallen world. We thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the fulfillment that he brings because he has purchased us by dying on the cross for us and being resurrected. We love you, Lord. We thank you for the fulfillment and contentment that you bring to our lives, even when we're busy and pursuing our goals with a passion. Our fundamental passion is to represent you and represent you well. Help us to do that to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. See you next week.